Good morning. Deafening silence. Jumbo shrimp. Dehydrated water. North South Carolina. Who can tell me what these terms are? Oxymorons, that's right. Oxymorons. An oxymoron puts together two concepts that are fine separately, but when you put them back to back, you find yourself thinking, did I just hear what I thought I heard? When you find out that you not only heard correctly, but that what you heard is really true, oxymorons both delight and perplex us. They delight because the incredible has become real. It perplexes because it contradicts what we thought we had known. There's a phrase that my grandparents used in that situation. Ain't that just the living end? They meant, isn't that marvelous? Isn't that amazing? Who would have expected that? Ain't that just the living end? Today's passage is as surprising as any of these examples. You see, in it, the Apostle Paul speaks of something that is so incredible that it nearly defies belief. Would you stand with me as Mark Stover reads to us from the book that tells us of the one we love? Good morning. I'll be reading from the letter of Paul to the Romans, starting with chapter 10, verse 1, and reading through verse 13. From the English Standard Version. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, 
bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mark. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I cannot do this on my own. We cannot do this on our own. I pray, Lord, that that your Holy Spirit that gave us these words would also help me to speak them, help us to hear them, to believe them, and to follow you. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Each time I get to preach, I like to remind myself of where we are in the study of Romans, the context of the passage that we're looking at today. I do this for three reasons. First, for those who are unfamiliar with the passage, it helps put it in a setting so that it makes more sense. Second, having an appreciation both of Paul's purpose in writing the letter and its place in the, in the Bible helps us ensure that we understand what Paul is saying rather than allowing me to say what I think we want to hear. Third, finally, I want us all to grow in our grasp of the content of this book. I want us to know more, not just about the book, but about its author. Not the Apostle Paul, but God himself. That's my goal, not just for me, but for you as well. So let's take a quick review. The thesis of the book is that You become right with God, not as a a result of what you do or don't do, but rather by believing the promise of God. Paul then argues that all of us, every single one of us, has failed to meet God's standard for righteousness, for what it means to live a perfect life. Every one of us has hurt someone. Every one of us has failed to help someone or failed to give God his due. In essence, we worship ourselves, our own self-image, and the things that God has made, rather than worshiping the maker. Once you turn from God, there's no going back. You cannot do enough good to outweigh the bad. It penetrates every part of who we are and what we are. There's nothing that is unaffected. Unlike in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, If we get exposed to uh, an overdose of gamma radiation, it doesn't give us superpowers. It kills us. You may feel fine for a little while, but inside the poison is there. It is working away, changing you, warping you, killing you. You are a dead man walking. And the poison within you will inevitably result in your death. And in the same way, We may feel fine even while we're in a state of of sinful rebellion against God. But the poison of sin is there. It is working its deadly way within us, breaking the relationships between us and God, between us and each other, between between us and and the creation. And there's nothing we can do about it. No way to, uh, to detoxify ourselves. No way for us to atone for our own wrongs. No way to be reconciled to God. Not one of us deserves heaven. Not one of us deserves God's love. And we have no more chance of fixing ourselves 
than I have of jumping up and touching the ceiling. I'm not going to try. You would laugh. You laughed anyway. But God did not leave us in our hopeless condition. Today, the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 4 that God has made a way for us to be declared holy, to be reconciled to him, to undo the deadly work that sin does in us. And he does it in such a way to make our eyes pop or make our mouths drop open. He tells us that we cannot save ourselves by trying to follow God's rules, his law. Instead, Christ is the end of the law for our salvation to everyone who believes. He is the end of our efforts to earn God's love and approval. Jesus Christ is the living end who destroys the power and work of sin in us and reconciles us to God. I want to unpack this for us by proposing three oxymorons. Paul describes the futility of a dead life. He he explains the accessibility of God's open secret. He gives us the wonder of an unbelievable belief. Put differently, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness because he undoes the futility of a dead life. He gives us access to God's open secret provides a basis for the wonder of an unbelievable belief. So let's look at this. First, first the, what is a dead life? In verse 3, Paul notes that his people, the Jews, have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is like everybody else I know. He's not just picking on the Jews. He's picking on me. He's probably picking on you too, in that we think we've got our lives together. We've got this under control. I'm not a bad person, haven't killed anybody lately, Uh, haven't even thought about it much except for that guy who cut me off. Uh, But the truth is, that's a dead life. I'm ignorant to the righteousness that God provides. I think there's something I can do by not being so bad, not being really sinful. But in the meantime, that poison is in me, working away at every part of me, my mind, my emotions, my actions, my motivations. Nothing is left unaffected by my rebellion against God. The Jews thought that somehow they could earn God's love by doing things or by not doing things, by following the rules. They were dedicated to it. In his testimony in Philippians 3, Paul lists all the ways in which he had followed God's law, and yet at the end he calls them rubbish, trash, stuff you don't want around. In Romans 10.5, we have an explanation for this rejection of his previous way of life. Paul reminds us that the one who does the commandments shall live by them. Now, this quote from Leviticus 18.5 at first seems self-explanatory. If you want to know God, to love God, then do what he tells you to, right? Just obey the commandments. Simple. Allow me to disabuse you of this idea. You see, the law of God applies to every part of our lives. It applies to our private lives as well as our public lives. Have you never lied? Have you never been cross with your spouse or disrespectful to your parents? Have you never stolen time from your employer? Have you never broken a promise? 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ups the ante by explaining that it's not just what we do or don't do that matters. It's also our motivations and the, the things that go on only between our ears. The things that no one else knows, knows about. He says, have you ever thought someone a fool? Have you ever been so angry with someone that you wanted them dead? Have you never thought yourself superior to someone else and despised them as a result? Never? Not even once? Remember, God's standard is perfection. A passing grade to eternal life means never sinning, not even once in word, thought, or deed. If the man who does the commandments shall live by them, we are all self-condemned. We may think we're living a great life, but in reality, we are alienated from God and from one another. Whenever we try to achieve a righteous life on our own, we are doomed to fail. But when we look as though we're alive inside, sin is poisoning us. When we try to earn God's approval by the way we live, we live a dead life. So if there's no hope for our, ourselves or for our righteousness and our own obedience, what hope is there? Who can save us? Is there some secret to obtaining life? Yes. But it's an open secret. All right, let me explain what Paul means, what, what I mean, this Paul, means by an open secret. Let me give you an example because I have a secret to confess. For 45 years, I've been trying to learn how to play the guitar. In desperation, you know, you think about it. 45 years is a long time. So in desperation, I have finally turned to the repository of the knowledge of the ages, YouTube. As I go there, I'm finding, you know, there are some amazing guitarists out there. I don't know what they have. They don't have fingers on the ends of their, of their arms, but they something that just does miracles. So I'll be sitting here watching a video, and the camera is zooming in. And I'm about to find out, how does Phil Kagi pull off one of those amazing runs? And I'll find out, you know, uh, the voiceover will come and say, did you know that in six easy lessons, I can teach you to play the guitar? Did you know that scales are overrated? Did you know that in six weeks, I can take you from guitar zero to guitar hero. You know, what, on, one thing that all these items have in common is that they want my money. The problem is, I do too. <laughs> Maybe that's my, my issue. If I just were not so unwilling to part with my hard-earned cash, I might be a better guitarist. The truth is, the open secret behind all of this is that there's no substitute for hard work, for practice, for doing it right over and over and over until it becomes a part of you. In a similar vein, we often tell ourselves that the secret to life is hidden. This is what Paul is talking about in verses 6 and 7. Well, do we need to go up to heaven to pull Christ down to find out what life is? Do we need to descend into the abyss to, to yank him up? And then we'll know. You know, in the 1960s, the Beatles went to the Far East to learn from some guru what the meaning of life was. 
My own company, the company that I work for, has told me that if I can just learn how to breathe, to be calm, to be focused, to live in the moment, then I'll find the meaning of life. I read this last week that <laughs> an article says that in Silicon Valley, among the tech leaders, the guys who design things like Facebook and Tesla and Apple and other things, that the use of hallucinatory and psychoactive drugs is common there. I mean, think about it. It explains a lot, right? We're all groping for some secret to find out, how do I get ahead? How do I stay ahead? How do I leave my competitors in the, in the, in the dust? How do I make something of myself? How do I get it right? Paul tells us that we don't have to perform some epic quest or obtain some esoteric knowledge nor achieve some mystic plane of contemplation. The open secret of life is that the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart, the word of faith that we proclaim, the word of life that God gives us. There's no need for a valiant quest to obtain the mystery of holiness. There's no hidden knowledge that's known only by the worthy. There's no secret document hidden away in some ancient abbey. Instead, the open secret is found in verses 9 and 11. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. For with the mouth one believes and is justified, and with the, or with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's it. That's the open secret. We may be poisoned by our sin and unable to save ourselves, living a dead life, but the open secret tells us, confess and believe and you will be saved. That's it. Yep. That's all. God will save any and all who confess and believe. But you may retort, that's an unbelievable belief. There's got to be more to dealing with our sin and knowing God than just words and faith. So look with me at verses 12 and 13. Let's see what this unbelievable belief is. The Lord saves any and all who call on him. You know, this, this sounds too easy. It sounds like one of those hokey YouTube ads. How can I believe something so simple? Let me tell you a story. In 2 Kings, there's a man named Naaman. He was in general the leader of the Syrian army. Syria was the enemy of Israel. Naaman was a powerful, influential man. But he had leprosy, a terrible disease. It would kill him eventually. Turns out that on one of his raids, Naaman had captured a young Jewish Israelite lady who, rather than being bitter and angry, when she saw her master's condition, she said, too bad you don't live in Israel. They got to profit. This prophet could heal you. What do you. If you had been Naaman, what would you have done? He picked up and he goes down to Israel. And he goes and he finds a prophet, Elisha, who says, 
All right, you got leprosy. It's incurable. Go take a bath. Go wash seven times in the Jordan River and you'll be healed. Naaman heard this and he was furious. Aren't the rivers in Damascus cleaner, better, purer than this stupid, muddy Jordan River? Why would it have to come here? That doesn't make sense. It's, it's too easy. It's just stupid. One of his men who were with him said, Look, the prophet had told you to go do some distant quest, perform some dangerous act, do something that was incredible that would take every bit of your might. Wouldn't you have done it? He's giving you something easy. Go take a bath. And Naaman went, and he dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times. And on the seventh time, when he came up, his skin was like the skin of a child. He was healed. Today I tell you the word of the Lord. He has not told you to go on some quest. He's not commanded you to do some mighty religious act. God simply tells you, commands you, to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. If you do this, your sins do not matter. Your past does not matter. Your present does not matter. The color of your skin does not matter. It does not matter whether you are a Jew or a Gentile or a slave or a free, cultured or crude, rich or poor, male, female, or other. Verse 12 says that the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. God tells us, he promises, he gives us his word. Those who put their trust in him shall be saved. Now again, I bet I know what some of you are thinking. That's too easy. That's too cheap. That can't possibly be true. Well, yes and no. It is easy but it's also so hard that unless God gives you the ability to believe, to believe, you never will. It's free, but it's not cheap. You can't buy the salvation at any, at any price because only God himself could pay the cost. This table reminds us, is the evidence that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. In a few moments, those of us who are Christians are going to confess together our faith. Christ has died, past tense. Christ is raised, present tense. He is alive. Christ will come again. He loves his people and will not leave us here will come to bring us to be with him forever. This is our faith. Those who confess with their mouths and believe with their hearts will not perish because he did. This is the content of the open secret. This is the cure for the dead life. This is the unbelievable belief that Christ is the end of the law 
to everyone who believes. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I speak to you this morning as as God's representative, as his ambassador. Put your trust in him. Do it today. Do it now. You will not be disappointed. You will be saved. If my grandmother were here, she'd be saying, now ain't that just the living end? Yes. Yes, it is.